0: You're listening to The Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the show, I'm Andy Hagans, and today we're talking about debt-free real estate investments. Not a typical, uh, you know, product segment, typical strategy, but it's actually a really important strategy that a lot of high net worth investors are finding very, very valuable. Joining me today is Shay Lappin, co-founder of Cove Capital Investments. Shay, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, Andy. We appreciate the opportunity to to speak with you and your listeners. And and I love it because it's unique. You know, it's so much of I'm thinking of like the bookstore with uh, like uh, almost like self-help type books about real estate. And it's all like, you know, h- how to buy a duplex with 1% down. And it's like the, the you know, the sort of general uh, trend of using as much leverage as you can. And every, you know, to me, it's almost refreshing when I hear of sponsors or fund managers who are thinking about, you know, limiting leverage. And then I was researching Cove Capital. I'm like, whoa, debt free. Well, that's really unique. You know, I got I gotta learn more about this. And then I was reading about it and it made a lot of sense. But I think a lot of our audience is probably not even aware that this exists. So we want to jump in and, and talk about this strategy and where it might fit in investors' portfolios. But before we jump into that, could I ask you, Shay, about your background? You know, how how did you end up co-founding Cove Capital?
1: Yeah. So I'll try to keep this uh within uh, reason, but you know, it stretches all the way back and just to me getting in real estate, I'd say it's kind of how this started and I'll tie that in in a second. But I came from, I I played water polo at a pretty high level. Uh, I went to the Olympics for that sport um, and most people haven't heard of water polo and you definitely don't make any money playing water polo. <laughs> and so you, you have to make a decision once you graduate college, it's, a, you know, if you have admirations to go to the Olympics, you got to be all in because you're a trading regimen. And a lot of times we have to compete in Europe. So we don't have the opportunity to necessarily take the investment banking job here out of college or a lot of the traditional routes that you may do if you were trying to get into finance or real estate or something along those lines. So I realized that really early in my career when I was a freshman uh, in school. And someone had advised me to, to look into the real estate sector at different areas, because um, that could be something I could do while I trained. Um, and I was fortunate to find an alumni at my school that brought me under his wing at in his real estate firm uh, in Los Angeles. And he got me my license when I was in college. And at that particular sector, I was more focused on, I mean, everything from leasing, to property management, to asset management, to brokerage. And I kind of learned all those uh, different areas and segments that ultimately ties into what we're doing today, what what got me here. Um, but in that time, I also was always networking, you know, who could I find uh, in different, you know, I learned about new sectors in real estate all the time. There's so many different directions. You, you, you were saying this before we started the podcast that, there's always something new to learn. So I was always out there trying to find uh, mentors. And ultimately I ran into Dwight, who is Dwight K., who's my uh, co-founder for Cove Capital. And he was working in the DST space, the, the uh, DST offering space at a different company. And through that 08 cycle, um when we were coming through the recession, he broke off to start out to start another company, which still exists today, but more of a capital markets company where we're raising equity for other DST issuers. Long story short, I came on board with him uh, about a little over a decade ago uh, when I retired officially out of water polo uh, to be on that capital market side. And then we evolved what we are today with Cove because we saw the missing piece Mm-hmm. in the institutional world. We are raising hundreds of millions of dollars for institutions um, that utilize debt. And not that that's bad. We've had a lot of success using debt. And if you use it correctly and conservatively, you most likely will be okay. Uh, but a lot of times that's not the case, right? A lot of times it's used very aggressively. Um, and so that's how we saw the niche. Um And what we had three things in mind when we started what we are today. And that was one, we were working with the end user, the retail high net worth individual. So we, a lot of institutions don't get to work with the actual end user. They're working through a capital markets desk or a financial advisor. Um, So we got to see the eyes of the retail investor early in our career. We raised close to $2 billion of equity through the retail channel. And so, um, and we got to see how institutions interacted after the end user became an investor. And we took all that feedback to try to create a better product. And again, not to say those institutions are bad. We have great relationships with them, but we just try to fine tune that. And then, so that was number one, the end user um, who's ultimately our end user because we work with high net worth individuals. Uh, number two, protecting the financial advisor or the registered investment advisor. Because that's a big risk too. As an advisor, you are placing your or your your client is placing their trust in you and putting in something that hopefully is not going to lose all the money. And so that debt-free protected the retail investor, uh, the the advisor, and then third, our company. You know, we want to be around for a long time, and by having a debt-free approach, uh, not only corporately but. In our offerings, we're able to sleep at night when coronavirus happened. We're able to sleep at night when the all this, you know, turmoil that we're all experiencing now. Yeah, capital raise slows down in environments like this, but again, we could push forward and we can sustain our current investors. So that's kind of how we arrived at that debt-free approach. And that was a thesis, right? That was a um, something that we got a lot of pushback early in our career pushing debt-free. By other institutions and other competitors and things like that. And I think people are finally realizing it well, it's it's interesting, Shay, you know, get
0: you mentioned getting pushback earlier in your career and seeing where, you know interest rates have gone. you know, and it's it's interesting that you built your business up and founded it in this very low interest rate environment. And it's kind of like, you, you know, if I'm in your seat, I'm probably thinking like, my, how the tables have turned, you know, <laughs> like it's, yeah because yeah. it's we, our time to shine. But, 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 but even before this higher interest rate environment, obviously Cove Capital was growing, you know, you, you have an incredible growth story. I think it's, it's really interesting in your story, you know, how many people get into real estate as, you know, I'd almost call it a side hustle or side gig or, and then it becomes their main thing. I don't think I've ever heard of an Olympic athlete, Getting into real estate as a side. That's a new one, but I'm like, well, it's still yeah, yeah. It's, it's the side hustle. It's you know. <laughs> so yeah, that yeah. that that makes sense. Well, you know, zooming out a- again to the debt-free thing, because I think this is the most unique aspect of co-capital. The fact that you you really own that, you know, it's front and center in your marketing, and you, you know, you're attracting investors on this concept. Um, why debt-free real estate investing, you know, aside from just lower risk. So I think it's going to resonate with some investors just from the standpoint of, you know, that lower risk profile. But, uh, what other, you know, I guess, what what other avenues does that
1: open up Yeah, when you're debt free? Yeah. So you take away the obvious, uh, mitigating risk by being debt free but then that also gives you a lot of flexibility there's about half of the equation that is we don't have the catastrophic loss now i'm not saying there's not risk on a real estate we have cash flow risk you know if a tenant goes bankrupt or doesn't pay their rent or we get affected from eviction moratoriums that's uncontrollables we can't control but what we can control is we don't have that loan pressure right the loan modifications the workouts all of that so that's your obvious that you're talking about, but what is the the other side of the equation? It's flexibility. Um, we've been able to exit deals in opportune times when we were planning on maybe holding the deal for five years and an off the market offer came to the table in year two or three. And if we had a loan, the defeasance or prepay or whatever may be in that loan structure, we may not have been able to take that exit. Um, on the flip side too, we've had situations where we evaluate our portfolio. And we go, you know what, we could get out of this deal today uh, with a good, decent IRR for investors, but we're seeing a change in the market, you know, a big employer left, um, or, you know, something's changing in that region where get out today. But again, if we had a loan, we wouldn't be able to do that without taking a big hit from, from uh, the defeasance or the prepay. Um, so the flexibility uh, there, the flexibility in changing Um, pivoting business plans, uh, flexibility and pivoting an asset. A lot of people don't realize once you're in a certain um, loan structure, it's not like the mom and pop loan, you know, that we go get me or you get from the bank. You have to ask a lot of permission to do certain things. You have to ask permission to restructure leases. You know, even if you're extending the lease and it all is going to be good, you still have to go through that red tape. And I've seen stories, with other institutions where they're going down that road and the bank is being slow for whatever reason or asking additional questions that's red tape and they miss that lease extension. That kind of ends up getting you know a better offer down the road. Um, so it gives us uh, uh, a lot of flexibility. I think that flexibility is going to be to our advantage in today's market because we're starting to see exposure and people having to fire sell assets. There's certain asset classes that are very much not financeable. So it takes out a lot of buyers. And so we can get into that potential low hanging fruit, get in there and reposition the asset and then, you know, cash flow and wait for the opportune time when lending comes back in the favor. Um, so risk mitigation and flexibility, I think, are two biggest components in that debt free approach. So, you know, you're talking about commercial
0: real estate. It, it almost reminds me of, you know, the strategy that some individual investors have that are, you know, like flipping houses or whatever, which is they're not using debt upfront. They're targeting foreclosures or just total dives or, you know, assets that are quote unquote problematic or distressed or what whatever, just, but individual houses and they're purchasing with cash upfront and then they refinance out the back end, but you guys aren't doing a refinance, right? It's just, your point is just, On that acquisition side you have more options more flexibility you can move faster right how often do you think that the the timing really plays a part in this where you know you're looking at an asset you know you're underwriting it and you can make an offer and then maybe competing bidders for whatever reason because of the timeline that it's being sold you know do you see that some of the, the other parties bidding on assets, can't get financing
1: together in time? Like, does the timing play any part in this? I think that gave us a big advantage in the previous two years, you know, where financing was readily available. So you had way more buyers on the market. So Mm -hmm. we definitely, that definitely helped us. We won some opportunities over the past two years where there were higher bidders, but you know, they may have a 45, 60 day runway because of that lending. Um, And we were able to come in on a 30 day you know, then go hard and close in 10 days. So yeah, we can lower that. I think in today's market um, you're not seeing 50 offers on every potential property out there anymore. So we're not going to put ourselves in a position of of, uh, an aggressive um, term or timeline because we don't have to right now. Maybe that starts coming back again. Um, I also think a lot of, and we're going to see this more. A lot of people don't realize there's people out there that are all cash buyers, right? With like, especially in this home purchasing, we're not in that arena, but that you were mentioning, but uh, you have to realize how are they buying all cash? They probably have a bridge line of credit, or they probably have a bunch of investors and in their capital stacks up to here. It's going to expose a lot of syndicators because yeah, they're buying all cash and flipping over here, but they also are, when you look at their capital stack, they're basically levered at are percent
0: ta- Yeah, you're talking about this. So the overall stack of Capital, you know, if you look at the number of LLCs, I mean, you know, some, some people might have a hundred LLCs or something. If you kind yeah. of get out of the one LLC or get out of the one bank account and look at the big balance sheet, you know, like the, the real balance sheet. Yeah. 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 And th- then you find lots of leverage.
1: And that's where we, another area where we wanted to simplify it again, selfishly for our own selves, you know, not having this crazy daisy chain of, like you mentioned. Uh, different ways you can stack the uh, the pile. Uh, but we learned, we have used mezzanine financing in the past and earlier in our career, but we learned we needed to control that process in time, especially in times like this, where you may have bridge or mezz or some short-term financing, generally speaking on like a six or 12 month term. What if you can't raise the equity in that amount of time and that that's coming due. And now that you're in the hands of some mezz or floating rate situation, which is what you're reading in the headlines now. Um, we structured our own fund to be able to utilize our own internal. Uh, we call it an acquisition fund. So we raise that capital, and that's what we use when we need to to uh, float an acquisition. So we control that process, right? We're not right,
0: so control- so basically conceptually. You're telling me you have like an internal bank, essentially. Correct.
1: But- yeah, yeah. Okay. Correct. Our own line of credit, basically that we control, right? Um, and we pay our investors well on that, a fixed fixed rate of return. And, and it works really well because remember the assets we're buying, we're not into, I know we haven't gotten into this, but we're not into currently flipping or or development. Everything we buy is a cash flowing asset today. And as long as that tenant doesn't go out of business, which again, we're trying to target investment grade type tenants, but we have cash coming in the door day one, we close. So if we're floating the property until we go out and raise the equity, we are able to pay that rent to our acquisition fund. right? So we're not getting ourselves in a hole. Um, so it's, it's a unique structure that we found. And again, we learned all that. Both my partner and I came out of the 08 scenario. And I know it's different fundamental issues today versus the 08 in a lot of respect, but there are similarities of lessons to be learned through that that we saw. Totally. Um, now,
0: in your literature, you know, one aspect that I thought was interesting was the angle on UBTI, right? Where um, real estate funds that invest in assets with debt produce UBTI because they're financed with, you know, equity as well as debt, and then because of that, you know, some of these funds are not eligible for IRAs or 401ks. So could you talk about that? You know, th- that's actually, that's not something that I'm super familiar with. I mean, I generally, I use my IRA or 401k, you know, those sorts of accounts for kind of the boring stuff. And I, you know, I have, you know, private investments outside of those. Um, is 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 a significant part of your capital base investing through, you know, these these kind of retirement accounts?
1: So... I'll, I'll admit that came out of, uh, that was not our strategy, you know, I'm not a specialist in that that world either. A lot of, to be honest with you, a lot of our equity has just been from pure cash investments. Uh, you know, people are liquid and our demographic is very, very liquid over the past decade. Um, and then also the 1031 side of things. With that said, we naturally stumbled upon that, yeah. oh, we structure our stuff debt-free, and certain retirement accounts, it works a lot better that way. Yeah. Uh, I think it's something that will grow substantially in the coming decade. And we've hired people to focus on that. and uh, but it hasn't been our source of equity. It hasn't gotten us to where we are today. It just happened to
0: okay, so that's interesting. So, I mean, yeah, you know because wh- when I read that, you know, I thought, well, that is an interesting hook. Maybe that's a big it, driver it, here, but it sounds like actually, you know, it is an interesting hook, and it is a driver for some but it sounds like that's not the big picture.
1: It's the not big the big, picture. not the big picture. It doesn't mean that it doesn't, you, you know, it doesn't mean it doesn't benefit us in the future, but, um, but yeah, our traditional relationships have come from the 1031 side. We've got, again, a lot of clientele on that side through the DST structure, which I know we haven't explained yet. Um, and then typically a high net worth individual is very, very liquid. Right.
0: Well, so on that note, then, you know, most of your investors, you know, the, the, it, it kind of makes sense that with debt free and DST, to me, those two things, in my mind at least, kind of naturally fit together in the sense that most DSTs are investing in pretty stable assets, you know, cash flowing, income producing assets. So just even the, the kind of the risk profile of a DST, a good DST anyway. To me aligns pretty well with the debt-free investing. But are there, you know, I guess I'd have to almost put on my academic hat as I consider this question. Are there certain strategies or types of assets that make more sense when you're not using debt in real estate investing versus and conversely, are there other types of assets or strategies you'd stay away from, because you'd say, you know with that strategy, you'd really want you know to use debt?
1: So I would say, if you had to use debt, you typically I would think are more safe in the multifamily or multi-tenant world, but more so multifamily or self-storage because if you're in an institutional asset and you have 50 to 300 doors, you know you're not. In theory, you're not. Ha- not everyone's not going to pay their rent in the same month or two, right? Right. Right. Where. When you're utilizing debt on a single tenant deal, even if it's Walgreens or FedEx, if they go dark, your cash flow is gone. Almost all all loans have a cash flow suite. So right? so you're you're kind of I guess I guess you're turning my thesis
0: on its head because you're actually if what I'm hearing, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're all you're almost saying because we're not using debt, we can actually afford to maybe take some risk that Correct. you wouldn't want to take if you are because y- you're right. You know, if you're using debt, if I'm financing an asset at 75% LTV or something, absolutely. I want it to be self-storage yeah. or industrial or multi-family, you know, class B multifamily or whatever. And, you know, even that's not perfectly safe, but th- those are relatively safe with all those tenants. But you're talking about, you know, that triple net Walgreens or triple net this or triple net that. If you lose that tenant and you have a note, you know, a debt payment every month, it's not going to take very long until you're in, in serious trouble. Whereas if it's debt-free, it's still not going to be pleasant, right? Still, it still no. wouldn't be pleasant to hold on to like a triple net asset or whatever for six, nine, 12 months to find a new tenant. But the point is, is that you could, it wouldn't wipe you out. And it's probably, you know, a desirable lot of land if you
1: bought yeah. it in the first place, right? You just need that staying power. And I I have a uh, a a uh, thesis that I don't know if it'll be true, but you know, the triple net world is something, you know, you have a demographic we're kind of running into the 1031 side of the world right now, or your, your typical real estate owner, but um, people want to be passive, right? You have a demographic, the baby boomers, very large population. Like you said earlier, they happen to buy a piece of real estate. Um, There's very uh, people that weren't focused. In real estate, there's very sophisticated people that obviously built a real estate portfolio. However, they arrived, they bought something 20, 30 years ago that's now worth 10 times more the value, right? And now they're tired of managing, especially over the last three or so years with all the turmoil. Most of these are apartment owners that that did this or single family homeowners and they want a passive investment. So what does their real estate broker pitch them? Triple net properties typically. Mm -hmm. And- one disclaimer, I'm not going to say all triple nets are bad, but that really only became in my point of view of what I've seen out there became a big driving focus, you know, coming out of the recession. And that was because there was a flight to quality and there was people wanting to be passive. And so over the past decade, if you went back to 2010, a lot of the triple nets you saw on the market had usually 15 or 20 year leases. And nowadays, a corporation doesn't generally sign as long of a lease. Some do, but now you're seeing around 10 year uh, loans on that, that's considered long. But if you think about it, you had probably billions of dollars of mom and pops buy triple net properties in those, you know, 2010 till now. And they put leverage on them and financing was good. So they got 10 or 15 year financing. All that debt's going to come due between now and the next five or so years, we haven't had a cycle with mom and pops owning triple net properties. There's not a real track record there. And so what are they going to come up to? The ones that utilize debt is these real, and I've dealt with these real estate departments. They know if you have a debt component on your triple net property, they know that they have you up against the wall. And so when their lease is coming due and you're trying to renegotiate a new primary term because your lender won't refinance your property unless you have a primary term on it, an extended term. What does the big corporation do? They're going to say, hey, we want the roof redone. We want the parking lot restrived. We want uh, you to pay our our tenant rep broker. And all of a sudden you're 500 grand in the door to get that lease extension. You may just fire sell the asset or you may lose the property because you don't have 500 grand liquid. And so I think there's going to be a day of reckoning for all of these people who bought triple nets that didn't realize that you can't just go refinance it like you've done with all of your other properties over the past 30 years. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing is a fractional ownership approach. We happen to be debt-free. Some of our friendly competitors out there utilize debt, but I still think that's a better play in the DST world if you're going to use debt At least you were a fractional and you made a diversified portfolio, right? So if God forbid something happens, it's not your entire nest egg. Um, But it's there's a lot of work repositioning an asset, even for fully vertically integrated firms like us, where we have all the resources. And imagine an end user who has just owned a single family home for 30 years. They have no idea what they're walking into.
0: Yeah. And that's, you know, Shay, that's interesting that you make that point because we've talked about DSTs before on the show and to me that is that's a recurring theme that i mentioned about the DST product which is you know it allows a high net worth investor, you know an individual investor, i mean even for family offices they they can 1031 into institutional quality real estate or just a, a type of asset that they wouldn't be able to access otherwise right and, and to your point you know certain types of assets you need a certain amount of scale expertise vertical integration you know to even to acquire and then to operate you know effectively and to maximize value you know both while operating and then and then upon exit so i mean i'm curious you know do do do, are your investors or some of your investors kind of like are they cross-shopping triple net versus DST or when they invest with you, do they already know like they're already sold on the concept
1: of a DST? It's just it, a matter of, of which DST. It's both. Um, But I would say, yeah, everybody's looking at their options. I would, you know, anybody with any level of sophistication is going explore to their, explore their options. So we have people, yes, that arrive to us and they're going to do a DST, but I guarantee if you ask them, they looked at triple nets prior, right? Uh, the other thing I think while people use debt is purchasing power, right? If if you have a 1031 exchange or even if you just have money in your bank account and you want to go invest in real estate, if you have only have 500 to a million dollars, you can't really buy too much in today's market that's of quality at a million dollar purchase price. Maybe some stuff out there, but very rare, so you go lever up at seventy five percent loan to value, so you can afford the three four million dollar property that is of quality, right? Right. Um, so I think that I kind of lost my train of thought there, but I think that uh, well, that's
0: a, again that's the advantage of the DST because if oh, when, yeah, you're, exactly. when you're, aggregating, you're aggregating, you know, uh, a million from this guy, half a million from this gal, and you know, twenty other people like that, you end up with. 20 million in equity or more, you know, 50 million, 100 million in equity, then you can go shopping at just a totally different level than any of those individual investors. And even at a family office level, you know, maybe they're exiting an asset at 5 million or 10 million or whatever. But but even then, you know, a lot of those families are investing in DSTs where they're accessing just a much more institutional quality type asset.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. and I've seen because we've been in this kind of DST my partner almost twenty years in the in that in this realm the DST realm and um, you've seen from the industry when it was kind of coming out in the early two thousands after the revenue ruling till now, you have a huge customer base where before it just used to purely be the the mom and pop, right the mom and pop that just didn't have enough money to buy the like you mentioned the the larger property. So, their only option was paying tax or going to something like this. Um, now, you have family offices, you have small investors. I've had 100 plus million dollar investors. Um, and so, it's pretty unique to see the space grow. Um, and the big institutional players, I've seen them come into the space and utilize DSTs for covers. You know, maybe they have a 200 million dollar exchange and they only allocated 150 on their own. So, they'll cover their exchange with our product. Um, Interesting. so, so there's so many different variations you could do. Interesting.
0: Yeah. I mean, that, that makes sense. So how do you see the DST space? I mean, it was, it was, yeah, I would say white hot. I think I've used that phrase before. It was white hot, you know, two years ago. Uh, and you know, even last year, especially in the first part of the year, it seemed pretty strong. Obviously all of commercial real estate has slowed down in the past 12 months. Right. Yeah. Regardless of rapper. You know, I don't yeah, I don't yeah, yeah, yeah. rapper. It's in it's all it's all has slowed yeah. down. But do you see the DST market, let's say in the next 10 years, you know, regardless of the current whatever 12, 24 month yep. environment that we're in, do you see it continuing this uh, I mean, frankly, huge, huge pace of growth that it, it had for the prior 10 years?
1: I do because there's so many. I don't want to open up other cans of worms of long conversations, but... No, no, open open up the can of worms, Shay. We're already seeing seeing, uh, big institutions come in our space. You know, over the past five years, ginormous institutions, a lot that we're very friendly with too. And uh, there's other big institutions I've heard. I don't want to say any names to get myself in trouble, but there's like, there's some of our biggest private equity firms in the the world are zeroing in on our space. And the reason why... that level of player is looking at our space is because the access to the retail investor, Um, historically their rate, I guess their end user through a pension fund or something is, or a sovereign wealth fund might be a retail investor, but Mm -hmm. that's a whole different capital raising machine that they have. And the retail investors, a whole nother half that they never tapped into the direct through just the the FA or the advisor channel. And what do the big institutions want to do? They want to Raise money for their REITs, right? Um, and their big funds, and with the DST structure, um, it's something we do too. And uh, God willing, we'll be right up there with them in twenty years from now. But you can transition a DST um, tax deferred into a REIT through that seven twenty one exchange or the up REIT vehicle. And so you're they so they're
0: they're, to- they're basically viewing the DST as almost like it could be a feeder pool with up Exactly. Into, into there. Okay. So interesting. So and,
1: and the with, only thing I'll say about that to advisors is, and it's part of our strategy too. You know, we will utilize it. There's there's benefit to a 721, especially in the not even getting in the tax stuff and estate planning, but in the asset classes. You know, again, we deal with triple nets for a large portion of our portfolio, and a lot of institutions do. And if you have a 10-year lease, you're always going to have a day of reckoning, a 50, 50 chance. Are they going to extend that at least 10 years from now? Right. Cause no one can predict uh, what a decade from now is for whatever that industry is. And so if an investor can do an upreit in three to five years, and bring that lease into the REIT structure, the fund structure, and now it's amongst a hundred properties, and then that property doesn't resign, they don't lose their cash flow overnight, right? They become ultra diversified. And so there's some advantage to the 721. The only thing I would say is to educate the investor. I've seen a lot of investors go into certain programs where they didn't realize they were going to be forced into the 721, which basically cut off all their liquidity, right? Because if they When it goes into 721, a lot of these are uh, at least upfront non-traded REITs, right? So there's no, I mean, they say there's liquidity, but you read in the news when all of a sudden people want liquidity, they shut down liquidity, right? Yep. (laughs) And so they're very, I think that whole transition could be considered even more illiquid than the DST being illiquid, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so you just want to, as an advisor and even as an investor, understand that if you're going to 721, that... Is it a forced situation or some issuers will give you a option? Hey, come up in here. Maybe they give you a sweetheart deal to come up because they want to get you, you know, in there. Or do you just want to go do the traditional 1031 exchange? And there's pros and cons to both. There, I, I wouldn't say one is way worse. The other is just understanding it.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, especially because, you know, the from what I understand, at least, when you do the 721 exchange through the upREIT, you end up in the REIT. That's essentially the, the terminal events, the terminal tax advantaged event. Exactly. In other words, if you could, because if you recycle it into a DST, I can go from DST one to DST two to DST three, I can swap till I drop. But once I'm in the read, I'm basically stuck into, you know, I'm stuck in the read till I liquidate. And then that's actually going to be a taxable event. Um,
1: it, it will now you can go dsc to DSC to dst you could also go dst oh now i want to own my own property right you're not stuck sure. in dst land the 721 currently um always talk with your cpa tax i don't know how everyone individually does their estate planning but currently from a high level you do get a step up in basis in the 721 structure as well still okay um so you do it does work and, and that's why some people are like you know what, i'm just going to be in this passive real estate game anyways i don't want to to every five to seven years do dsc to dst to dsc i just want to get up in that 721 vehicle and live sure. my life right i'm retired that's where there's the potential pro of that structure absolutely um, but it's so, perpetual but sophisticated investors like i said there's been a whole new population that has come in where They're coming to us not because they want to be passive investors. They're coming to us to cover their exchange. They're coming to us because they can't find a a replacement property and they don't want to pay taxes. Mm -hmm. They still may want control in the future, right? So that investor may not want to get stuck in the 721 uh, story. Totally, totally. Okay. Well...
0: As long as we're talking about DSTs, you know, and you mentioned where you see a lot of the growth coming from with these larger alternative asset managers who are looking at DSTs, you know probably moving into that market, maybe with you know upre type products, um, where do you see the growth in terms of sectors, you know or or even within your own company, you know what what sectors, what types of assets? do you think you know you'll see a lot of the growth in in the next 5 to 10 years what what sectors interest you the most so
1: a large amount of our portfolio is anchored in the more traditional long term lease net lease structure we have a lot of industrial like fedex distribution logistical facilities for a handful of different corporations um, we have retail we're a little more picky on the retail right we want to be careful um with retail uh, just with the internet world of today that we're all aware of. Um, I think going forward, we are zeroing in on low hanging fruit and that can be retail, right? Because lenders are afraid and specifically shopping centers. Um, yeah. So we're looking when you at- say low, When you say low hanging fruit, do
0: you basically just mean, you know, you're, you're finding deals like strong, so, strong value?
1: Correct. Yeah. So we're finding deals because if you have a, shopping center, most leases are between three, five or seven year terms. Maybe you have an anchor tenant a sh- uh, that has a 10 or 15 year lease, but a lot of your inline is all shorter term. And a bank is a lot more hesitant on that in today's world, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of, re- you know, a lot of those tenants may be wanting to shrink or uh, square footage or whatever. So we're going in trying to find stuff that does have strong anchors. Uh, so, you know, we, again, that, it does have current cash flow but it's got maybe vacancy because the previous operator ran out of capital. They, they have no more access to bridge or lines of credit. To They were starting a value at play and they ran out because of floating rate debt or, or something along those lines. And so we will come in, buy all cash. Hopefully we're buying, you know, really well because um, they need to exit or maybe they have a loan coming due in a year and they just see the writing on the wall and they can still get out. You know, a lot of these people still bought the assets five, 10 years ago at a much lower market. So even though they're in theory selling out a discount, the sellers are still getting out whole in a lot of cases, right. at least right now. So they're not getting a bad deal. They're just facing a future bad deal if they don't get out. And then we're buying deals that, you know, hopefully we bought a deal recently in Texas that was in the 80% um, occupancy and it's trending really well. We're about four to six months into the, the business plan. And we're already in the nineties. Um, and we have a couple other leases we're negotiating right now. And then we'll, there was some out parcel um, opportunities that we're going to ground lease out. So we have some LOIs on that. Um, and this is all stuff that would be very, we did all of this in under six months. If we had a lender again, that would have. Yeah. What,
0: I mean, say <laughs> what I'm hearing, like with this, you know, the the last example that you provided me, that's just the advantage of having money of uh, i mean because so many of the other you know situations you referenced other owners of these assets they're stretched you know when you're financially stretched when your balance sheet is stretched a lot of times you can't make optimal decisions anymore your decisions are constrained by your debt payment you know it sounds like what you guys are coming in you're not spending money foolishly i'm not implying that but there's just enough cash again, because of the structure, your overarching philosophy. It's basically we have the cash, right? And, and so when you have cash, you can just, you know, I guess make more intelligent capital allocation decisions because you're
1: not, you're not constrained by, by debt. Yeah. And you don't need a rush. You don't have a payment and you're just rushed into certain terms or rushed into a tenant you should have never signed up or things along those lines. And in, in the DST structure and we do funds too, but our, asset class is the same. So whether we're in a fund structure or DST, we still kind of focus on our style box. Um, But with that said, on the DST structure, and this goes with all sponsors, at least in my world that I see, you pre-capitalize your reserve. So a lot of syndicators out there will have a master plan to go buy the center. And they thought in the back of their mind, they were going to be able to get a construction loan or some sort of line of credit to do this probably successful business plan. And all of a sudden this world happens and they can't do it where we're coming in. Like you said, day one, we have the cash in our, in our reserve account. We're not reliant on the construction loan. We're not reliant on the line of credit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's (laughs) Shay, I got to say your perspective is so unique. And it's amazing to me that, you know, you all have, have grown just. you know, very successful with some of these larger DSTs. And I understand you have several funds that are not DSTs that are just you know for for you know cash investors essentially. So it's very clear that this is resonating with people. I, I know we're short of time, but I guess I would just ask you, you know when you' when you're talking with family offices or individual investors, you know how how many of how many investors are investing with you? just because of that underlying philosophy, you know, the, the sort of sleep at night, sleep well at night factor where they just, they just love the concept of debt-free investing. Yeah. I mean,
1: ultimately everybody arrives at that. I think today everyone showing up has that already just because the, the one blessing out of this whole situation has kind of, uh, been unique for us. Uh, before, we just have to walk everything I explained on this podcast. It would be an hour-long conversation about the pros and cons. And again, I, full disclosure, we've utilized debt in our pre, on the other side when we used, you know, raised money for uh, DSTs. And, and some 1031 investors have to take on debt. A lot of people don't realize that. if you, Once you take on debt, you basically have to continue that on unless you want to add a bunch of cash in because it's a, you have to replace your purchase price. Right. Right. And so some people, it just doesn't work for debt-free and that's unfortunate, but there are, I would say most of the high net worth, uh, population today is very lowly leveraged and there's no reason to, at your point in your life cycle to push that, you know, it's about protecting the nest egg at this point. Um, and so, yeah, it resonates. We, Again, we still have risks in the underlying real estate, but I like to think we've mitigated the catastrophic risk outside of, I guess, a tornado just taking away the building or a ginormous <laughs> hurricane or something. But then again, we still have the land, right? We could yeah. still pivot, you know, and uh, and and try to fix that situation.
0: Yeah, it's it's very interesting, you know, that that emphasis on capital preservation. We have an upcoming investor show here i believe it's on may 4th and we're doing a whole panel on capital preservation because I, I think you're exactly right you know most high net worth investors as you transition to very high net worth ultra high net worth family office level uh, the emphasis becomes more on capital preservation you know we i always say protect and grow your wealth you know that's yeah. but i think the emphasis can begin to shift towards protect because you can always grow it but you can't grow what doesn't exist right yeah. so i, yeah, yeah. I, I, I I I can see why that resonates with so many high net worth investors. That being said, where can our audience of high net worth investors go
1: to learn more about Cove Capital Investments? Yeah. So, you know, our website is pretty simple. It's just CoveCapitalInvestments.com. On there, you'll find our contact information. I'm always happy to jump on phone calls. We have a great team um, and we're fully integrated from in-house accounting to legal To asset management. So we're all available and and an additional resource for the advisor and for the investor.
0: Love it. And I'll be sure to link to that in our show notes as always. Shay, thanks again for
1: joining the show today. Yeah, I really appreciate you giving me time and have, have a great rest of your week here.
0: That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon
1: with another episode.